Hi, everyone. My name is Dr. Greg Wells, and this is my podcast. I'm a scientist, a physiologist, an author, and I love exploring how to live a high-performance life. In my books, my presentations, and this podcast, I am doing my best to translate hard science and powerful experiences into actionable, effective life performance strategies. Using the latest research on the brain and the body, this podcast will show you simple but transformative strategies that boost mental and physical health, advance careers, and upgrade lives. I am committed to changing one life at a time for the better. I want to focus on health, happiness, and performance, and I call my mission the billion-person problem. And I don't kid myself that I'm going to reach a billion people, but that's the dream and the space where my passion, my expertise, and my practices all come together. My passion is to help people live healthier and more impactful lives. My expertise lies in the research that I both try to conduct and engage in for a living, And my practice is devoted to providing evidence-based insights and strategies that make it possible to achieve personal and professional success. And that is what this podcast is all about. I hope that you love the show and it makes a big difference in your life. Let me know what you think on Twitter at Dr. Greg Wells. And without any further delays, let's dive into this episode of the Dr. Greg Wells podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. It's great to be with you. I'm really fired up about this episode. We are, again, revisiting some of the episodes that we have done previously, highlighting the very, very, very best interviews from uh, my previous podcast and porting them over to this one to make sure that we document the really core ideas that really resonated for the most people. I'm sure, as you know, we're faced with a tremendous challenge in the mental health, mental illness epidemic that is facing the, that the entire world is faced with. The stats suggest that around one in five people will access the medical system at some point because of a mental health related challenge. And we need to do things differently. We need to break down the stigma, much like cancer was stigmatized, uh, misdiagnosed and not treated very well in the 1950s. And then subsequently we did the same thing with AIDS in the eighties, didn't understand it, stigmatized it and didn't cope with it very well. I believe that exact same thing is happening right now with, uh, mental health. We're afraid to talk about it. We're afraid to ask for help or, uh, people who have mental health challenges get, you know, we whisper about them rather than actually speaking, uh, an analogy is like, if you have depression, you hide, uh, you don't necessarily hide, but like you, you, it's hard to speak about it openly and, and honestly because people just don't understand it and they're scared. Whereas if you have a, um, a broken arm, you would very quickly get out and say, hey, how's your arm? Can I sign your cast? We simply don't do that with people. It's an invisible epidemic that we're really struggling to cope with and to understand. And so to dig deeper into this topic and explore it, I wanted to get probably the top expert in the world in to speak about that. And I believe we've done that with Dr. Bill Howitt. Dr. Howitt is an incredible resource, uh, a amazing researcher, a world leader in thinking in mental health. And so Bill and I go really deep in this conversation. It's a longer conversation than I've done previously. And Bill has an amazing ability to explain all of these topics and really explore it in great detail and in good context for where exactly we need to go in the future if we're going to actually address this particular challenge. 
So I hope that you enjoy this conversation with my friend and colleague, the amazing, brilliant, and insightful Dr. Bill Howitt. Hey, Bill, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Greg. Uh, so before we dive into uh, like you and your work, how would I describe what you do on a daily basis? Like, what is Because you do so many different things. How, how does one describe your, your expertise right now? That's a really good question. My, my kids have the exact same problem. I'm, I'm, sadly, I'm not a, a fireman or a policeman, so my kids have always tried to figure out how to define what does dad do. So what dad does is dad wakes up every day to try to figure out how to help people remove barriers that are limiting them from achieving their potential. So it kind of sounds wordy, but one of the barriers that I'm being really focusing on is actually how do you try to help people learn to think differently that it can impact their quality of life. And that can go through different mechanisms. It might be working with large organizations or small or with government around consulting to help organizations make better decisions. It could be through writing columns or articles or courses or books to try to influence people individually. It could be through teaching, seminars, talking. It could be through seeing clients one-on-one. -on -one. So, it's, it's, it seems quite confusing to some onlookers, because as you said, I'll be writing and talking and doing, but it all has the same purpose, Greg. I'm trying to figure out how I can wake up every day to help people find purpose and meaning in what they're doing. And I know what happens between the six inches of their ears can have a big impact on what they're capable of doing. And most of it starts with what they believe they're capable of doing. So I'm kind of in the helping people learn how to believe business. That's amazing. And how did you end up here? And I understand that it's been a long journey. So I'll, I don't mind if we sort of unpack the entire you know, origin story of, of how you ended up being, frankly, quite settled in on what you're trying to accomplish in the world. And it's quite clear you've got a pretty, uh, it's clear that you have a clear vision about what you're trying to do. And I'm sure that that didn't come out of nowhere. So uh, how did you end up doing what you're doing now? And, and what's the origin story? Yeah, it's actually, thanks. Uh, I, I think we all kind of somehow, maybe not all, because that would be a generalization. I think lots of people that end up doing the kind of work I do, there is some backdrop. Um, for me, my story starts pretty um, simple for me, and, and it's very clairvoyant, my story. I'm a young kid that was uh, born in Halifax, Nova Scotia. I was uh, adopted. Uh, I ended up in Prince Edward Island with my mother and father, my adoptive parents, and, and they were two, you know, kind of angels for me that provided a lot of structure, stability, and safety, and got me in a really different, safe environment. Uh, my challenge was, though, is I was, on the outside, I looked like a, you know, healthy, young, vibrant, young male, uh, you know, and, and doing really well in motor skills and et cetera, but Inside, what the challenge was, was I had a um, challenge of was reading and writing. And some people might have thought I was slow developmentally. I failed grade two. And when I failed grade two and lived with the shame of failing grade two and started to develop social anxiety and, and started to live with anxiety and fear and depression and those kinds of things, that kind of followed me all the way through the public school system. I kind of created the illusion I was all right. I, I was kind of an introvert, um, kind of kept to myself, did play sports, had a healthy uh, group of friends. Um, however, 
it wasn't until I got to Acadia University that when I was about 18 years old, I started to really realize that I was struggling with learning disabilities and I had a visual and auditory dyslexia. So I was kind of lucky, I guess I had both, but I kind of learned what I also had was ADHD. And no, I kind of knew I had challenges, but I didn't really know what it was. And that kind of, I got a mentor at Acadia that opened some opportunities for me in Acadia University where I played football and, and did two degrees, was very, very supportive. I think everyone loves their alumni, but I don't think I'd be where I'm at today if it wasn't for the caring teachers, or I guess the professors at Acadia who saw something in me, and they accommodated me, Greg. So what happened is you being a university professor, you know how challenging it is dealing with young people, especially around reading and writing, but because I couldn't read or write, they put accommodations for me to have oral testing, got me the resources and got me infrastructure and support systems. So over my five years at Acadia, I started to actually learn how to read and write and think and articulate my ideas and, and get my confidence so that I could actually learn. And I wasn't just going to be a good farmhand. And I also started to come to grips with my self-confidence and I started to be able to deal with my anxiety and my depression and started to realize that once you're able to free up your mind, and you move from that concept to where you wake up every day feeling fear and allow yourself the opportunity to start to fail some. And once you start to fail and you realize that failing is a part of learning and then you move into focus and you can start to actually focus and kind of have a vision in your head of something you want to be accomplished, then you actually start doing it and you get across the goal line and then you actually start finishing something. Then you're putting yourself in a position to flourish. And that's what I was able to do. And so with that, I uh, first job I got was I went left to Katy University and I went right into being a youth worker. And that was really exciting because I knew something about mental health from my own experience, but did not have a clue how to help other people. Uh, so I got thrown into the world of being a youth worker, um, starting to try to work with people because I was ahead of sports background and a little bit of coaching background. I used those skills. And then I realized I really just do, from my experience of failing before I go, well, here I am, I'm in a new career and I'm kind of failing because I don't know what I'm doing. I kind of can create the illusion I do, but these folks have different needs and think different than me and I haven't got the training. So that resulted in me moving on. I ended up doing a master's in counseling psych that I started to realize I like learning and I started to study uh, a concept called reality therapy with Dr. William Glasser's work. And that was, I got that exposure and was doing a master's and that opened up a world and provided me with frame reference to start counseling people. And I, once I got my master's, I started to do some employee assistance counseling and that got me involved in interest around mental health. And then I went and did a PhD and then, and then I moved into the community college where I started to teach addictions and created the program for human service counseling addictions. And then I started to realize I wanted to do more around assessments and I got me involved in human behavior. And then what really was a transformational point for me, because at that point I was seeing uh, clients one at a time. And I really still do enjoy seeing clients. But I started to note, especially when I was doing EAP work, is that, you know, lots, I believe strongly the, that employees own their mental health. I really do. But I also always believed that the employer had a role in it. And I thought it was a two-way accountability. So I thought, heck, you know, what would it be like if I just could actually put myself in a position maybe 
how do I actually help more people in an hour? And how do I actually, because if we're coming in one at a time, and I had a little story in my head, it's probably not politically correct, but I saw it like this, all this mental health and addictions I was seeing, and I felt it was a, like an anthill. It kept coming and coming and coming. I didn't know, I didn't feel I was making enough impact. I know for the people I was working with, they probably did, but I, I wanted to try to make a bigger impact, Greg. So that resulted me into starting to, you know, doing some corporate training and speaking on leadership development because I was convinced that the employee-manager relationship, before I really had a whole lot of insight in psychological well-being and psychological safe workplaces, that the manager-employee relationship was the key. So I started to get focused on that. Somehow I ended up golfing in Hawaii. It was a good golf trip, by the way. And then I ended up, uh, after that golf trip, I ended up in North Carolina for a couple of years doing work in HR and had an opportunity to do a bunch of executive coaching. So now we're starting to see how coaching skills and counseling skills could work. And then somehow I had another dinner meeting. My wife was probably getting worried every time I went to dinner. But anyways, I had another dinner meeting. I ended up in Wall Street. And I took a bunch of different roles from supporting people and uh, coaching to helping, you know, functions in different corporations. And I spent a waddled around New York for about 12 years working in and out of the corporate world. Still at the same time, I was still sometime, I was still teaching for a few of those years and I was still seeing clients and still, and I started writing books. That's probably where my kids got confused. I've probably confused sometimes too, but I knew I was trying to figure out how to get more involved in the corporate world. And as I started to get a little bit wiser, I started to realize that I need to do less things and do them with a little bit more depth. So then it moved me to really start to focus on how can I take my insights around my experience about living with a mental health my entire life, from seeing clients for many years and staying active and keeping you know different you know, requirements in place so I could see clients and kept all my malpractice insurance and all that stuff in place to, to how could I actually start helping organizations help start facilitate to create a psychological safe workplace for employees. So that led me to um, coming back to Canada, focusing on getting involved in the corporate world and starting to work, I took over the role of chief of research for uh, development of Morneau with a product I created called the Total Health Index. We brought that to market, started to spend more time talking about how the mind and the body and the workplace experience and life, like financial health, et cetera, those, that how total health starts to impact resiliency. And so for the last three years, that's what I've been really working on is coming to large organizations, bringing in a frame of reference around how employers can play a role in promoting total health of their employees to promote resiliency so that they have more ability to deal with all the stress. Because at the end of the day, the majority of the cases I saw weren't mental illness. People confuse the difference between mental illness and mental health. Mental illness is on one axis from low to high and mental health is on another axis. So I have lots of patients and lots of people in organizations could have very severe mental illness, but with the right support and treatment, they can have excellent mental health. 
and vice versa. We have people with stress and poor mental health and negativity, and that mental health can impact them in a way that it actually can impact their quality of life and, and can actually start to lead to mental health. So it's a lot of air I used, Greg, but that's kind of how I got through from personal experiences to introducing myself into the world of being a practitioner into the corporate world. And that's what I'm focusing on mostly now is working with large companies, small, medium government, trying to help people figure out how to help their employees learn how to believe more and deal with all the stress that's unwanted. We, you and I both know that you need good stress. So there's lots of people are having a hard time managing and feeling overwhelmed by the challenges of life. I've written about six pages of notes just off that intro. So that's pretty impressive, Bill. Um, can we go back a little bit? I'd like to hear a little bit more about the challenges that you faced with ADHD, anxiety, depression, while you were in college and, and throughout your life and what you did to get yourself into a, into a far more functional state where you're coping and managing those, uh, those, with those challenges. Can you give me a little bit more insight about how you made that, that shift early on in your life? Yeah, I really can. I think what started with me is um, it actually started with an outside-in model, meaning most of us, uh, when we're under a lot of stress, when you're dealing with a mental health issue, what a lot of people don't realize is that when you're under a whole lot of stress, we have really two brains. We have our executive brain or conscious brain, call it your new brain, and then you have your, your limbic emotional brain, your old brain. And when you get under a lot of stress, that executive functioning can kind of turn off and you can get caught and trapped in your emotions. And when you're really caught in your emotions, you can be really, really, really discouraged. And it's hard for a person sometimes just to pop up on their own and figure it out. What I was lucky was when I had one person from the outside who started to become a mentor and started to help me start to see that Life I didn't have to change by tomorrow. There was little micro steps I could start to learn, and there was micro skills I could learn. Like, for example, when I, the whole concept around locus of control was completely foreign to me that I actually had some ability to make decisions for myself, and I wasn't always dependent on what other people thought. And from a mentor who started to teach me that I can learn how to drive my own bus, and I might actually fail some while I'm driving, but I can actually choose to try. And by choosing to try, I may be failing. And so from failing, you can start to build some resiliency. It's because you start to realize, it's kind of like what Edison did when about a light bulb, you start to actually start to realize that there's the only way you're going to succeed is by trying. And a part of the process of mastery is actually failing. And I think because I was uh, played sports, that was kind of easy for me because I wasn't the best athlete in the world and I wasn't a superstar. So I had to work really, really hard just to be average. And, you know, I beat, was cut in sports and had rejection in sports. So I kind of knew that that was a part of the game. You just had to actually dust off and, and, and start to work harder. So for me with the ADHD specifically, was I started to realize how to harness it because to me, my ADHD is my biggest gift I have. Hmm. And because what I realized is that 
lots of people think ADHD means I can't focus. What it really does for someone with ADHD is once I find become passionate about something, I hyper focus. Hmm. And I can I can actually stay really in tune to something like writing. People ask me, Bill, why do you write so much? And I said, because I was trying to figure out how to write because I'm dyslexic and I was trying to wear it out and beat it. So I focused on it and kept writing and writing and writing and writing, thinking could I get through and learn it. It wasn't that I was OCD. I was just passionate and really focused and interested on the process of learning how to write. And, and so when I started to realize with intention from the inside, I, I could do that. And then emotional regulation was interesting. Like I could do really, really well in the workplace and at home with my own family and that I, I struggled and it took me many, many years. I probably still struggle because when I get in a comfortable, safe spot, I can, have a, I can still by times have a tendency to have a, 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 to react somewhat different because my guard's down. And what I've started to realize is that, is that now that I'm starting to mature and I'm starting to, and getting older, I'm realizing what was really happening is that my success level, why I got so successful by being ADHD was I worked in a really strong structure. I created structure with clear parameters, clear goals, clear expectations, and purpose all the time. When I came home and I didn't, I was off duty and I didn't have as much structure the environment with my kids wanted something, my wife wanted something, and I had some chaos, then I, I slipped back to more emotive. So I started to realize that, that this whole thing around brain health, that there is no end to it. And so I'm, I'm, I wouldn't want to ever create the illusion that I've mastered mental health. I'm actually much more aware that there's three steps. There's awareness, there's accountability and action. And what I'm looking at doing with my mental health every day is focusing on being aware. I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty blunt, direct person. I'm a walking accommodation. I have no worries or fears to say who I am or what my, uh, what my limitations are or what my handicaps are. Uh, and I also know that I own a lot of my own behavior. So through my parenting, I think, Greg, my mom and dad taught me values about you own things and fail. But I would say the big thing, the strategies I picked up were around being mentored, learning micro skills, those cognitive appraisal micro skills. And because of my training, which is interesting, because I became trained as a counselor, the covert benefit I was, I was learning all these techniques that as I was a young learner, after doing my, I started my master's when I was 26, I was getting the benefit of learning all these skills that I was using for other people, but I was applying some to myself. So from a cognitive behavioral therapy perspective, I was working on my cognitive schemas and my mental map all the time. And if I had negative thinking, I was challenging my irrational beliefs. So I was perpetually learning. And also the great benefit is that when you're counseling and you're, you're listening to other people, you start to realize how fallible we all can be to moments of when we get caught in emotion. So I became very aware of emotions and I still, and I've become very aware that Greg, and it'd be, and it'd be interesting, you know, your thoughts on it as a person as well as a, I don't know if there's a really a goal line, like, like you're used to working with high performance athletes. I don't know if I got a gold medal yet for mental health or I'm still trying to get to the bronze, if that makes any sense. 
Yeah, it absolutely does. And I've shifted a lot and actually many people that I'm working with in all different disciplines have shifted away from worrying so much about outcome and getting across the finish line to focusing on loving the process. That's why I believe in the idea of 1% gains, just being a little bit better every single day, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, whatever works for you and continuously driving things forward. And I read Walter Isaacson's, uh, biography of Leonardo da Vinci recently. And it's just an amazing book because I'm into art history. And I was fascinated by the fact that da Vinci had not finished the Mona Lisa. It was in his bedroom when he died. He was still working on it and he'd been working on it for over 20 years. And I think that's a really good analogy for all of us and everything that we're trying to do and the approach that you need to take and stop worrying about being perfect or fixing it but just seek on a daily basis to try to be better every single day. So that's, that's my take on, on that idea. And you said a couple things in there that I want to ask you about. The first one is that you mentioned that failure is part of learning. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Cause I think that that would help really also really help people to change the trajectory of what they're, they're dealing with. If, if that's a, if that's a challenge for them. Yeah, I, sure. I, I like trying to, give kind of both universal quantifiers like metaphors that we all can relate to like we all can relate to the sun supposed to come up up every day most of us can relate to the about learning to ride a bike and this is the kind of thing that got trapped in my head for about it so when i i was not a blessed kid to get on the bike the first time and didn't fall off but why did i continue to want to get on the bike and continue to try and continue to uh uh, go through the process of falling off the bloody thing and getting scraped and, and go through that process of trying to learn a bike is because of the benefit, because I was really clear that for having that bike met freedom meant that I could go see my friends. I didn't have to walk. It was going to give me more autonomy and I had a really strong value purpose. It's interesting that that experience for me when you, when I find, when I lock into something that I really, really wanted, uh, where does it say that I'm going to learn it the first time and I'm supposed to, that's supposed to be easy. And that was one of the things I think because of, you know, you know, growing up and, and and not that I'm one of these people that, you know, I hold a whole lot of it, but you know, it was kind of odd. I wasn't many kids in my class that didn't know who their parents was. I didn't, I had adopted parents. There wasn't many kids I ever met that were adopted where I grew up. So it was like I always felt there was something was missing in my life. And I realized that, that because I was adopted, that that mean I was a failure. No, I have people who actually love me. And what I started to build on in my own little head was that I don't know if we can actually do anything 100% right the first time. Other than this, like, even like you watch someone who's golfing and they tee off and they hit the first one straight. Well, if they expect they're going to hit every ball straight, that's really kind of not realistic because even Tiger Woods shanks a ball. So I think in life we're going to make mistakes. And I think the point being is we may, we probably are better off planning failure and not planning the day we're going to fail, but put failure into your plan that you're going to have setbacks and out of every failure can be an opportunity and profound learning if we allow ourselves the opportunity. Because I think, Greg, it's super unrealistic to believe that you're not going to fail in life. So 
I've just tried to attach it to a metaphor, my model that before I can start focusing on things where I feel confident I'm going to do it, I have to be able to get myself comfortable with moving through the process of failing so that I actually will actually be doing, whether it's exercise, whether it's marriage, whether it's parenting, whether it's learning to drive a car, we're going to make mistakes and it's a part of the process. If that makes any sense to you. Yeah, absolutely. And I've been pushing in schools recently the idea of the failure project and creating your own little failure project because everyone's so afraid to fail right now. And it's, I think, just paralyzing people. Uh, failure projects being pick something that you have essentially no chance whatsoever of achieving, but that you're interested in. Go for it all out. Try your very, very best to reach that next to or impossible thing. And then when you fail, celebrate your failure and share your failure and flip it out on social if you want. And it's amazing how that liberates people from worrying about what's going to happen uh, if they go after something that they don't really have much of a chance of getting. And for A, a lot of them end up achieving it. And B, if they don't achieve it, they learn so much that it makes it easy for them to do it's so much better in the future and it sets the stage. I've failed more times in my life than I can count and epic, huge failures. Uh, And when I tell young people about those massive uh, train wrecks uh, and then show that in the context of life, I actually think that the vast majority of successes that we achieve in life come from those massive failure moments. They tend to be the inflection points. That would just be my take on it. No, I agree a hundred percent. I love that. I'll, I'm going to start asking people when's the last time they had a massive failure. Cause I think that's actually, actually intuitive. It may not sound like it makes sense, but it, it's really wonderful. If you ask them what, what changed in their life after that massive failure, when they got to the other side of it. hundred percent. And it actually, what I've been really interested in is after those massive failures or traumatic events, and you, this is where I'll flip it back over to you for your expertise. I think a lot of people end up on one of two trajectories, either the post-traumatic stress decay or the post-traumatic growth where you begin to perceive things as challenges and you can go in one way or the other. I guess that also leads into the interpretation of good versus bad stress. I'd love to throw it back and at that back at you and just get your sort of playing tennis here with this concept, but get your take on, on that idea. Yeah, well, I think first, yeah, I think you've answered the first part of it very well. I, I think in the research in post-traumatic stress, there is a starting to be a line of research around post-traumatic growth. So the people from very negative experiences can actually get some resiliency and some different strength that they actually can take different levels of uh, of challenge on them that may uh, earlier could have had more of a negative impact on them. And I'm not going to say they're getting more grittier, but they can actually grow and evolve and develop from it. And I, and I think about an example that may not be a traditional example around post-traumatic growth is that I do a lot. I did my postdoc at UCLA School of Medicine, and I specialize in addictive disorders. And when I, when I was on the road speaking, uh, you know, I would go to open AA meetings. Often, you know, when that's when I was drinking coffee, the coffee was free and had nice people. And mm-hmm. what I wanted, to, what I wanted to do was I had an opportunity to actually see 
living examples of post-traumatic growth of people who had lost everything in their life due to an addiction or substance dependency, uh, come through it, use the program, the transformational in their life, and then they came and volunteered to be a sponsor and help other people. And they're so much stronger and more resilient from coming from a really challenging, challenging parts of their life. So you're right. So people can move through that. And I think when you bring up the word stress, I think that's it's interesting that lots of folks will uh, attach the word stress as being bad. And to your point, there's two types. There's eustress and there's distress. And the way I try to educate folks on stress, stress is this. It's a difference between what you want and what you have. Now, because you have a difference between what you want and what you have, there's really two ways you're going to deal with that. And Lazarus talked about it. One is you're going to be a problem-focused approach where you're cognitively going to say, okay, this is something I have a problem, a difference between what I want and what I have. This is a stress. This is a challenge. I can lean into it. and I can cognitively deal with this. Or if the stress is a difference between what you want and what you have and you don't feel you cognitively can deal with it or you feel so overwhelmed cognitively, you shut down and you end up moving into emotional coping. And the frequency, duration, intensity, the longer you stay in emotional coping with the difference between what you want and what you have, that stress levels when a person can move away from good stress in towards distress, and it can be kind of binormal. You can either be naturally under a lot of unwanted distress, you can gravitate to anxiety and you can start feeling more anxious and speed up, or you could move towards more depressed, sad, blue. That doesn't mean you have a mental health issue or a mental illness, it means you're under pressure and you're coping. What happens though, if that doesn't get ameliorated, it's frequency, duration, and intensity. The longer you stay experiencing these symptoms and do not get any relief and can't move from an emotional state when we're feeling overwhelmed and can't process, the longer that happens, the more your mental health is at risk. And, and a part of the challenge with stress, it doesn't have to be that because it can be very chronic and it accumulates. So we wake up every day, and if you start to not pay attention, you're getting a lot of distress, and you kind of use the metaphor of your waistline, you know, you being a, an expert in exercise, you probably know this one better than both. Like, you don't go, for, go from a 36 waist to a 44 waist overnight. It was kind of you were resetting your norms every day and normalizing it, and to the point where all of a sudden, at 44, your doctor is saying you have metabolic syndrome, you're at risk for cardiovascular disease, you're at risk for type 2 diabetes, you need to do something. Well, stress can do the same thing from a neuroplasticity perspective. We can reset our norms every day. And the challenge with the stress is that as it accumulates, it can start to impact your physiology, it can actually, for example, if you're under a lot of stress, it can start turning, creating, uh, like, increase your cortisol levels, as you know. If it's heightened, it can turn on your fight or flight response a little bit every day, and you, then that starts suppressing your immune system. And so the big difference we try to let people know is stress is not your enemy. 
it's paying attention if you're under stress and you know you're emotionally coping and you don't know how to find relief or to ameliorate it. The next thing is to take accountability for that. And I try to teach people three simple steps. If I can't resolve it myself, then step two is I talk to a friend, a trusted friend. And step three, if I'm stuck, I might need to talk to someone that knows how to get people from emotions back. And I, I think that's the stress trap, Greg. People are getting caught into it, but they don't even know they're on, they're, they're on a slippery slope, if that makes sense to you. Yeah, it does. The one thing that I've really noticed is that it appears to me that stress is elevated. It's chronically elevated. People simply are not or haven't figured out or aren't giving themselves permission to take a break, to unplug, to downshift, to activate the parasympathetic nervous system through meditation or walking without your phone, uh, going for a walk without your phone, um, you know, spending some time with your family, connecting without checking social media. I just really feel like that's a, a huge challenge that people are faced with. We're just simply not giving ourselves the opportunity to recover and regenerate in between periods of what we perceive as being distress. Does that make sense? Oh, it does 100%. And I'll, and I'll add on to that, Yuri. And the challenge with what you're saying, Greg, is that makes a presupposition that the person is aware that they're under stress. And, and the, one of the biggest barriers to mental health issues is a lack of awareness that they're actually experiencing it. They just start renormalizing being uncomfortable, becoming comfortable to be uncomfortable. And what, what I realized too is the more of as a clinician looking at it, there's lots of folks, sadly, is that you know, Daniel Kahneman, his book Fast versus Slow Thinking, kind of broke it out. You I mean you really have fast brain versus slow brain, and and lots of us are operating in this fast brain and, and living life. And the challenge with your fast brain, it doesn't actually think. It actually just reacts based on what it actually thinks it's learned. And it's actually can be linked to emotions, emotional responses. And so some of the people that you're describing are getting caught in a loop where that powerful executive functioning is turning off and they're operating on autopilot and they get stuck in autopilot and their life goes Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and their life kind of goes by and they're stuck in, a, in an autopilot and what happens is they kind of get trapped in this routine and that routine starts to kind of becomes their routine and once the routine becomes a routine, as you and I both know, you start developing habits. And the challenge is, often we develop these habits, we're heat-seeking pleasure missiles, and we don't like feeling uncomfortable. So we'll start looking for things to help us cope that create some illusion of feeling better, like chips, pop, little things that people do, eating food you know, maybe the extra beer or two, things we're trying to do. And again, it's trying to rationalize because from a behavioral economics perspective, human beings, we give them too much credit. They don't make rational decisions. What you think might be common sense, but they, you know, like exercise, well, everyone knows exercise is good for you, but why do they not do it? I think it's a little bit more, Greg. I think people are getting stuck in their emotions and they, and they have not, 
had an orientation or a GPS how to get out of their emotions, if that makes any sense. It does. And uh, just on the weekend, I was trying to answer that exact same question for a group of people that I was speaking to. And I finished my move more section of my talk and I showed an Im- a video, 60 second long video of Ingrid, my daughter, doing rock climbing. And she goes, she starts the, the, the rock face and she goes up about 25 feet and then she rappels down and she gets to the bottom and she turns around and has this look of absolute joy and happiness on her face. And I so psyched I actually videotaped it and caught it. And so I paused the video at that moment of joy and happiness. And then I asked the audience, I said, okay, so let's contrast that look that she has on her face, the joy, the happiness, the thrill, the pride with the look of someone at your gym on the, tre- on the treadmill or the elliptical. And of course, everyone laughs because the look of most people's, uh, on most people's faces on the elliptical at the gym is one of you know, pure suffering, if not anger, uh, and, and you know, pain is etched everywhere regardless of how long they've been on it or how hard they're going. And I actually believe that it's just a subtle shift that you can make psychologically while you're exercising towards uh, first of all, being aware of your mind, mental state, uh, your mindset, and then making that subtle shift towards deliberately enjoying yourself, paying attention to the fact that you're outside, you're running by the trees, you're in the park with your family, or you're exercising, and it feels good to move your body, and you're going through a range of motion, and you're sweating and clearing out your system. Uh, And I've done that a few times now on the treadmill. It's made a massive difference for me. And so I've become sort of hyper acutely aware of the link between mind and body and how if you can adjust your mindset, things also change physiologically. But all that came out of that insight that I had just watching Ingrid go up and down the rock wall. I don't know if that fits into the model that you're trying to express to us, but that, that was an interesting insight that I, that I thought that enlightened me a little bit over the last few months I've been thinking about it. I think it's excellent. I, I love it. I mean, I, I, I look forward to seeing that sometime. I think the, the cool thing about what you're saying is it's interesting. If you look at the happiness research, you know, 50% of it's genetic, 10% of it's environment, and 40% of it's intention. And so happiness comes from the inside with intention. And from a neuroplasticity perspective, our brains become very skilled at finding negativity. And that's probably why we're the top of the food chain, because we know what fear is. And some people actually start to, without realizing their brain, they start wiring their brain to become very negative. And it's from neuroplasticity, it takes as much energy to be negative as it's positive. So you just gave a great, a great example. While with intention, you made one cognitive decision to change your focus. And that's often what it takes. It can take one cognitive decision. And a great example of it that can change your state and your emotion. And, and we learned this a lot from when, when we studied what the, the monks were doing around gratitude in regards to finding peace because gratitude comes through peace. And gratitude is acceptance and the acknowledgement of what you have, not what you don't have. And so when you acknowledge what you have from a positive psychology perspective, you can actually over time start rewiring your brain to be more positive. And we're learning more through epigenetics now that even you can be impacting your, your, your 
thinking and your feelings, your emotions, all, all the way down to your telomere level by just paying attention to one thought at a time. So, no, I, I think it's an excellent point you just brought up and one that hopefully you keep reminding people about, Craig. Yeah, that's really interesting. You also mentioned mental health versus mental illness on the X and Y axis. I'm wondering if you can explain that in detail because I believe right now that people are, especially in the educational area uh, and often also that I've noticed in, in corporate environments, that people equate and are speaking of mental health and mental illness as one and the same thing and are just thinking that, well, we'll call it mental health so it's not as negative of a term, but you actually are breaking it apart and saying that it's two separate issues. I was wondering if you could explain that because I think it's a really critical point for setting us up for the future. Sure, happy. And I can't take the credit for it. I got the idea of myself, the CEO of the Mental Health Commission, Louise Bradley and myself wrote an article and we used Key's research and they did a nice job. He did a nice job of splitting them. And what it, what, how I try to teach people is this. Uh, and I kind of use this simple example, so I'll bear with you to make to how I kind of teach people. So, you know, I'll say, I'll start with someone, I'm, if I'm talking to a group of people, and I said, just curious, if you closed your eyes, how many of you drove here today? And they'll raise their hands up. Just curious, if you try to drive home, I'm not saying to do this because it's, I'm just, I'm not recommending this, but I'm just curious, I want to ask you to use your executive brain and say, if, if you closed your eyes and you were to drive home and you had to have your eyes closed, how many of you would, probably make it home. And they all start laughing and saying, no, no. So, you, so you, there's no way you're going to find your way home. Okay. So let me ask you other question. So today for physical health, what did you do with intention for your physical health? You know, did, and, and big one is exercise, diet, and rest. But most of us know, if we, so we know there's something we can do with intention for our physical health. Do you agree? And it's very much don't do anything to your, with your physical health. It could be very similar to driving home with your eyes closed. You know, you could end up in a ditch and you could end up with, a, you know, a chronic disease or something else or overweight or so something bad can happen if you're not looking at what you're doing and paying attention. They go, you agree. Now, mental health is the very same. So if I asked you what you did today to actually support and build your mental health, some of you might look at me like I have three heads. The same thing as asking what you did today with, you know, with intention to build resiliency. So let's make it really easy. What did you do this morning to wake up to guarantee yourself you're going to be happy and have a wonderful day? Can you answer that? And yeah, I like listen to Jim. <laughs> that always makes me happy, but yeah, keep going. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's perfect. I mean, yeah. but you, you wake, you wake up and you actually fire off your neurology, but you and I are a little bit different. See, we, we took the course and we know we through trial and error and we actually know we're not perfect, but we know if we, you know, we keep doing it, but lots of people, Greg, don't do it. So we know happiness, mental health is a sense of ideal state of feeling well about yourself, a state of well-being. And what happens is, is as your emotions of, of your well-being. So clearly there's a thermometer where we can be negative or positive, feel happy or sad. And that's just that emotional thing like the weather, sunny, rainy, cloudy, rainy. And that's your mental health. So teaching people their mental health. However, if your mental health and you're having stormy, cloudy, rainy days, what a lot of people don't realize if you continued in that pattern and 
and, and you get stuck and you may not ask for help because here's what drives me uh, uh, somewhat frustrating as a human being is that one out of five Canadians have a mental health issue. One out of three of those five only ask for help. It's the biggest chronic disease on the planet right now. It's $2.5 trillion a year problem globally, bigger than all cancers and cardio together. And it has an 89% success rate for the people who actually are struggling with their mental health. And what happens is if people come early with challenging with their depression or anxiety before it hits criteria, because all a mental illness is, it's some arbitrary criteria that was created saying someone with these symptoms for six months no longer has a mental health issue, they have a mental illness. And what what it can happen is, and the root cause of it doesn't necessarily mean it's genetic, it could be psychosocial. And the way I try to explain to people to Greg is the following. You're messing around with brain chemistry. Sometimes we people don't understand. So if you took your hand and had a deep cut in your hand, and what stops it from bleeding is platelets. We never look at a person and say, hey, your platelets aren't working. You know, you something wrong with you. You're weak. Your platelets, you get weak. But no, it's your platelets. Poor you. Hopefully you can fix your platelets. Well, mental health is the same thing to mental illness, is that if you don't deal with how you're actually feeling and thinking about the world, over time that can change your brain chemistry to the point where your brain chemistry and your neurotransmitters changes that where you're, it's almost impossible without some support for a very severe depressed person because their serotonin levels are so low that it's very much like the person with the platelets. It's, it's a, we're, we are, we are, it's chemistry. And, and what I'm trying to get people to become aware of is we, we can actually deal with things by, by our daily outlook in life and, and protect ourselves a great deal by learning how to actually deal with how we think and how we process the world. And if we don't, that's what this whole challenges around mental illness for people who move into it. And it's not all just genetic. I think that's what people need to know. Like, in fact, there's probably 34 to 35% of all the short-term disabilities that are happening in workplaces are uh, uh, basically adjustment disorders, which is a form of psychosocial stress, um, dealing with home and work and et cetera. So that's, I try to make sure people understand it's, they're not the same thing, but one can actually lead to the other. Does that help any? Yeah, absolutely. Let's say someone's on that continuum and this conversation has sparked a realization that I'm on that pathway. Maybe my mental health is being compromised. I'm potentially on my way to mental illness or, or someone's listening that they realize, oh my gosh, yeah, I've been feeling really bad for a long time. What do you do? How can you begin to make the shift and go in the opposite direction back towards mental health? Great question. Uh, I'll walk through a little bit of a framework. First is we have to, uh, you know, if I ask you what your blood pressure is, you'd probably go, hey, I don't know, you'd have to get a test. The challenge with many people with mental health, they don't have a baseline. So the first thing is to get a baseline. You know, that's one of the reasons why at the Global Mail, I created Your Life at Work. It's a free online tool. You can go get your baseline of your of your quality work, your quality of life, or at work or home, 
Same thing as the total health index we created with Morneau Chappelle. And then you can get your baseline of your coping skills. So that first is get your baseline. Test one. You know, as a good scientist, get your baseline. Step two is very much like when you went to high school, there were skills that you learned your ABCs and your reading and writing and your alphabet and, and your times tables. Well, there are developmental coping skills that are interpersonal skills like emotional intelligence, self-efficacy, locus control. You teach them to people in a way they're not clinical. They're actually very applicable. They're skills that you learn. And there's probably about eight or 10 of them. And though so you, if you get these developmental coping skills, and the big one is that lots of people have, that's why emotional intelligence did so well because it was so many people actually could relate to, wow, I don't know how to emotionally regulate. And, and I, I know how my behavior can be impacting other people or, and how I can build more empathy and relationships. So there's a skill set around developmental. So once you get those developmental coping skills, that's your foundation. But then the next step is what we call sustainability coping skills. So if you think about oral hygiene, you clean your teeth every day. Well, either the everyday sustainability is how do you actually, how do you support your mental health? And that's a very personal thing. So supporting your mental health to get more space in the world, some people will meditate. Some people become more mindful. Some people will journal. Some people will do diaphragmatic breathing. Some people would go for use, uh, use exercise as a part of their mental part. Some people might use golf, gardening. But there's, there's a bunch of micro skills that I teach and other people teach around teaching. Basically, the essence of is cognitive um, hygiene. How do you clear out all that negative stuff that's in between your ears if there is to be cleared out every day? Or how do you give yourself a break from the world so you can slow down information to catch up? And here's the part that lots of people forget. 30% of us are introverts. And lots of us are extroverts. We created the world for extroverts. And so lots of people like me that I'm an introvert. So I, I can go out and create the illusion. I'm interested and be around people. But because of the amount of stimuli in the world, I need to get away from stimuli so my brain has a time to rest and to process what's happening. Where extroverts need external stimuli so they can actually feel they can function almost. They need that extra, they need it from their environment to help them. So part of it's learning a little bit about ourselves, not because I don't want to meditate, doesn't mean I'm never going to get peace. And I, fi I find what we need to be careful, Greg, is trying to take you know, a hammer like Maslow has talked about, just because it worked, it fixed everything. I think it's a very personal thing. But the, the answer to your question is, is, is awareness, accountability, and action. That's why I wrote the book called The Coping Crisis, because my belief system is there's lots of folks that aren't, don't have a mental health issue. They're just struggling with the thing called being a human being and just looking at how they can actually learn how to be able to get through each day and feel that they're okay and that tomorrow will be a better day. And I think that's what most of us are striving for. Um, and I, so I end this long, uh, I feel like I'm, I'm on these long torts with you. It's interesting, but it, it, it's, we can end, if we can actually just keep one thing in mind, it's a very, very trainable skill that we forgot to put in our education system to teach people how to think, 
and to deal with their emotions. That's really interesting. The idea of learning how to think differently and control your emotions is a pretty powerful one. I'm actually trying not to think in order to control my emotions better, which is kind of backwards, but uh, I've just been doing a ton of meditation, learning how to quiet my mind and stop reacting and trying to respond a little bit more instead of, instead of being so reactive. It's just the, the project for 2018 that I'm, that I'm exploring and it's a lot of fun. I have notes on locus of control, resilient, psychologically safe workplaces, relationships, but uh, I want to be respectful of your time. That probably means we're going to have to do a part two of this at some point in the future. Uh, (laughs) Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. What are you up to right now and where can people uh, find out more about you online? Oh, thanks for asking. Um, Well, I'm like, I'm working, working, as I said, the chief of research with Morno Chappelle. I'm doing a lot of work through the University of New Brunswick. I have a program, a coping skills program online called Pathways to Coping, so they could see it there. Um, I'm doing a lot of work now with the Conference Board of Canada, speaking across the country on mental health. As you'll see me in the Global Mail pretty much every week. I'm doing a lot of writing for them and doing some work with um, uh, the Chronicle Herald, as well as I have a 12-part series I'm doing in the HR Reporter all around total health is coming out so folks can find that. I'm not a real big uh, Twitter person. However, if people, people want to uh, find me or learn them pretty easy, just have to put Bill Howitt, H-O-W-A-T-T, into Google, and it seems to find me all the time. Yeah, awesome. Bill, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. I really appreciate it. All right, everyone. I hope that you enjoyed that and learned something about mental health from Dr. Howitt. He's just incredible. His context is amazing. His depth of knowledge is is incredible. And obviously his depth of experience is equal to all of his academic training and his publications. As usual, if you found that helpful and you think someone might benefit from listening to that, please share it with them. Uh, That helps us tremendously. And obviously the whole goal of this is to help as many people as possible. So when you share it with people that might find it relevant, it just elevates everything that we're all trying to do. If you can subscribe on iTunes, that's amazing, super helpful. If you want to comment on anything that you heard, Twitter is probably the best place to do that. And tag me at Dr. Greg Wells so I can get back to you. That's it for this week. I hope that it was helpful. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll speak to you again really, really soon.